0: Hello, everyone. This is Artemis with the Uncivilized podcast, episode 41. Today, I have Dr. Kara Akebak, Assistant Professor of Anthropology at the University of Notre Dame, uh, specializing in bioanthropology, you know, or however else you want to swing that term. We kind of had this little like, what's the best way to describe this? And believe it or not, academia has some different ways of defining things and little niches, but we're not going to get into all that. Uh, she is the co-author of Woman, the Hunter, the Archaeological Evidence, and Woman, the Hunter, the Physiological Evidence, alongside Dr. Sarah Lacey, who was our previous guest. She also co-hosts the podcast Sausage of Science. Doctor, how are you doing today?
1: Artemis, thank you so much for having me on. I'm doing all right, despite the negative temperatures outside. How about you? Oh,
0: yeah. Oh, uh, you know, same. Uh... <laughs> I did the funny. Th- I did the funny thing and ran in a temperature that was recorded at negative thirty-one degrees the other day.
2: Uh-huh. Uh, I felt
0: like I had to. I had to. Rain, you know, I had to connect to my hunter-gather ancestors a little bit.
2: And how did you? I'm feel not built running? like
0: them. I'm just curious,
2: uh, how it was did you feel great. For
0: you? It was great until I ran back into the wind and my face mask Ooh. froze, and then I couldn't oh. breathe or see. So it was
1: actually uh, really funny. So. Saturday or Sunday. I don't even know what day anymore. Maybe even Friday. The university sent out an email about, you know, cold weather preparedness and safety. And two of the pieces of advice they had on there were completely wrong. <laughs> it was just like, oh, people. And one of them is don't do anything physically active outside or don't exert yourself outside. I'm like, damn it. That is like the best way to stay warm if you have to be outside <laughs> is to keep moving. Yeah.
0: Yeah, that's yeah, and it's funny because I had to stop into a store on the way back just because it was so cold, and people looked at me, they had this concerned look. I was like, what could possibly be the thing? And I pulled my mask <laughs> off, and that's when I saw like over the mouth area, like the whole thing was just frozen. I was like, I looked like a like a Yeti. <laughs>
1: yeah.
0: Yeah, I just bet. felt like I, I had to it. really lean into the uncivilized
2: mm.
0: you know, identity a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess we'd kind of start with the same kind of questions we asked uh, your your peer. So what are your, you know, what's your background? How did you come to anthropology or, like, the study of, like, humans?
1: Yeah. So I was that, you know, kid growing up. Uh, my, my parents had a lot of expectations for my brother and I. I have a brother who's four years older than me. And... All along, as, as we were you know, getting older and older, they decided my brother should be a lawyer and I should be a medical doctor and nothing else will, will be acceptable. And so, of course, my brother went on to get his PhD in history <laughs> and is now a professor also at the University of Notre Dame in the history department. And I still actually really loved... Medical science and and biology and I and I went to undergraduate um, got my undergraduate degree from the University of Michigan and I studied cellular and molecular biology and during my junior year of of college and this is a little sad so I'm sorry Artemis uh, my mom was diagnosed with cancer and then she passed away four months later so it was a very very fast diagnosis to death and uh, in that time I was also Taking genetics. And the number one most common example in a genetics class is cancer. And I just, you know, as anyone would, was in this just deep, deep, deep depression. And then having this very personal experience with the healthcare system, I realized I wanted no part of it whatsoever. Uh, And... Mm. Yeah. And simultaneously, you know, completely unrelated, I had started taking some anthropology classes first just to fulfill some requirements. Uh, But I had taken a few more in that semester in which my mom got sick and then eventually passed away. And I just kind of fell in love with it because it became this thing where I can study all the cool biology stuff that I really like and ask interesting questions. But I don't have to deal with patients dying. I don't have to deal with grieving families. I don't have to deal with abusive parents or anything like that. And, you mm-hmm. know, everything goes out to the people out there who do that. I I have nothing but the utmost respect and awe for the job that you do. But I knew that was not me. And so I started diving into to anthropology a little bit more. And Believe it or not, when I applied to graduate school in my my cover letter, I said I wanted to study orangutan biomechanics, which is really, really far from what I do today. Um and kind of along the way in graduate school, I went to Washu in St. Louis. My advisor and I were both kind of like zeroing in on more physiology, in particular, human energetics. So think of calories in calories out where those calories are going when they go out. Um, but we didn't know the other was interested in it at the time. Uh and then finally I kind of came forward with the I don't want to do this biomechanics stuff anymore. I wanna do this physiology stuff because it just makes sense to me. And so that was kind of it. And uh I, I read this paper that was really cool looking at the maximum number of calories a mouse could expend. Um, Hammond and Diamond were the authors, and it's the most absurd setup. They have a bunch of different groups of mice. Some are being run on a treadmill, not a treadmill, I'm sorry, like a little rat wheel until exhaustion. Some are put in the cold until exhaustion, and then some are forced to breastfeed until exhaustion. So they would keep on switching little pups out to to breastfeed off these mama rats and mama mice um, until they were exhausted, just to see what is the maximum number of calories they could burn. And me being, you know, the overly enthusiastic graduate student wanted to try to do something similar among humans. See, like, weird of humans. I think there's
0: rules about that now.
1: (laughs) 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 Exactly why I did not do that study, Uh, and so instead, I worked with the National Outdoor Leadership School, which is like Outward Bound for those who have heard it, where people take these classes where they go out into the wilderness for you know anywhere from a week to a year long, and they live and hike in these various areas. And so, I worked with students doing semester-long courses in the Rocky Mountains. Uh, to try to understand how both climate and physical activity uh, contributed to how many calories they were burning and to see if I could better predict how many calories were burning. And so that's how I got into the physiology side of things, uh, which then that whole experience because I got to be in the Rocky Mountains spring, summer, fall and winter, I learned that I really like the cold (laughs) way more than the heat. And so I wanted to, to find a way to continue studying physiological cold adaptations among humans and i was lucky enough to, to meet a few folks in finland and begin a field site in finland working with the reindeer herders up there looking at the ways in which they bioculturally cope cope with extreme cold
0: whoa i mean this is similar right you did a you did something like that but fernanderthals right
1: yeah. So, I mean, that work, that's related. to The Neanderthal paper, that was a review paper that has been long overdue in our field to really kind of summarize the ways in which Neanderthals were adapted to cold climates. And, you know, Artemis, it's really, really hard to try to understand physiology of the past because it doesn't always show up in the bones that we're able to see. Um, and so we have to rely a lot on modern human studies to see what what say Neanderthals would have been capable of physiologically to stay cold in glacial Europe?
2: Mm. Yeah, I just I this is only
0: tangentially related, but I'm reading a book by Dowdy called Ultra Social.
2: Uh-huh.
1: Are you
0: familiar? Are you familiar I with that? I am
1: not. I am not.
0: Yeah. So he's kind of talking about how like the kind of the whole ultra social in the sense of like how termite colonies and ant colonies are these super organisms, mm. and how humans have gone that way, particularly with agriculture and neoliberalism and the growth of like global markets. Yeah. Um, And, but he, he brought up Neanderthals and, you know, and this idea that, you know, that's still persisting myth that Neanderthals were just these dumb brutes. And we talked about this Mm -hmm. with Sarah as well as like, that just doesn't hold up. And that, you know, it's, it's interesting that since the Neolithic that our brain cases have shrunk and that Neanderthals even back then had larger brains. And I know that doesn't necessarily correlate to, intelligence or whatever but i find neanderthals for whatever reason just so interesting this idea of human but not us necessarily
1: yeah and so have you read it's the the old old one clan of the cave bear and that entire children of earth series
0: Yes, both me and the friend who was here is snapping because I got her, I got her that for like a present because I listened uh-huh. to that. I was like, that was so it's so like the anthropology now is dated, but it's so cool to listen to or read. I love it, that book.
1: The thing is, it's dated, but also it was totally ahead of its time for when it was right. written. And right. so that's just such an interesting thing when I think about those books that like I devoured those books like so fast. That like, yeah, it is dated now, but some of it was just like
2: revolutionary
1: the as being very intelligent, but perhaps a different style of intelligence than what we use today. And I just absolutely love that.
0: Yeah. Unfortunately, I'll be honest. I got halfway through the second one. I was like, this is just a little too smutty for me. I, as a, <laughs> you're you're as
2: not a into the year old, <laughs> No, I'm sorry. I can't say that I came home.
0: Like, the first one was fine, you know, like, a little bit Neanderthal, human smut. All right, that's fine. Well, smut might be the wrong word to use to describe yeah, what's happening that, in that, that book. Yeah, first
1: book, yeah. Yeah,
0: but, uh, and also, so, uh, can you confirm or deny that Neanderthals had genetic memory in which they could see the previous non-human ancestors? I true?
1: cannot confirm or deny, and I think it's probably... But you can't deny, and I, I think that's what's
0: important. <laughs> you can't deny, so I think that's important, right? So there there's the possibility.
1: The possibility. <laughs> You're saying there's a chance. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, one in a million. <laughs> so, I I guess with kind of, I want to talk about that a little bit more than Neanderthal Because what is the term you you just used for the Finland biocultural? Yeah. Yes. And you talk a bit about what that term means. And the reason I brought up the Dowdy book in particular was he talks about the idea of like Darwinian evolution just being individual genetics. Like that's not mm-hmm. true. And geneticists need to get over that, that culture in the relationship, the connection between your biology and your culture and where how that's pushing our ideas of evolution.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I, I always want to be a little bit careful with this. So one of my very, very good friends and colleagues is a population geneticist. And he is all for the idea of biocultural. And it actually, it seems that the the push in the field today within anthropology is much more trying to push the cultural as distinct from the genetics and separated from. And that's just as bad. It, you know, that's right. just as bad as saying, you know, culture has nothing to do with it. And he's been right. a really, this is, this is Dr. Charles Roseman, by the way, and he's a really big proponent of like good population geneticists have been doing this, you know, biological environmental interaction and, and when you think of environment we also consider cultural factors there so a broadly defined environment Good population mm-hmm. geneticists have been doing this all the time and it's it's often more the anthropologists who try to ignore the genetics uh, that's actually and, and, exactly
0: how Gowdy talks about it is the contradiction mm-hmm. within human like the kind of for a word we'll say history or social studies in that sense yeah. of like not every discipline is as excited for it
2: mm-hmm
1: Absolutely. So, yeah. And he is does that... talk about
0: population. What is the term you use? Population.
1: Genetics. What yeah. is it? Genetics. Yeah. He talks genetics. about
0: that one in particular. So.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, I'm glad that I made a relevant comment. Damn, I'm on a roll. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah. So I guess, so again, so what, with the biocultural, what is your perspective on that? Particularly with Neanderthals. I know this has nothing to do with the women, the hunter, and maybe we, yeah, in some fun. way it actually will come up later
1: yeah, in some no, sense. Again, like I said, I'll talk about anything. I don't care. Um, I'm in a good mood today, Artemis. Uh, So, yeah, I think it's easiest to talk about it as an example. Uh, So thinking of fire usage, that's cultural. You know, controlled use of fire and when to use it to stay warm, that is a cultural thing. When you're able to build a fire, your body then doesn't have to work as hard physiologically to maintain body temperature in a cold climate, for example. So the use of clothing, Uh, physical activity, as we talked about, that you went for a run in the extreme cold. And that's why I asked, how did it feel? Uh, Because being very physically active in the cold is one of the best ways to stay warm. And Mm -hmm. choosing when to be physically active and how long to be physically active, that's cultural, behavioral sorts of activities. And those kinds of things would be incredibly important for Neanderthals. So taking a look at the reindeer herders in Finland, and I always want to be super explicit about this. The reindeer herders in Finland are not some like frozen in time fossil population. These folks are fully modernized. Like they use GPS units on their reindeer. If they have really big herds, they will rent helicopters during herd roundups, all of this stuff. Um, However, no matter what, they have to be outside in the cold. No matter what they do, they're being exposed to the elements more often, uh, and the harsher parts of the elements more frequently than, you know, other parts of the finnish population. And there are still a lot of things that can't be mechanized. Um, for example, the herd roundup, they have to physically gather the reindeer and that can be mechanized to some degree. But once they get all the reindeer in the enclosures, everything is then done by hand and they are separating the herd for those to be culled and slaughtered and those to be sent back out into the forest. They're cutting off antlers from, um, from the reindeer to make into various handicrafts, things like that, then there's the actual slaughtering process. And so all of those are really physically demanding things that have to be done in extremely harsh conditions. And so Mm -hmm. that makes a really nice example for when we think about Neanderthals. It's, you know, of course, not a perfect one as we'll We'll talk about modern populations today in relation to Woman the Hunter. But it does give us an idea of how bodies today are interacting between their behavior and their biology and the environment. And we can use that both to try to understand past populations better, but also to try to understand the ways in which, you know, people cope in the here and now. We are in, you know, a great big polar plunge right now of the winter. But for some people, they've not experienced cold like this before. And so trying to right. understand the ways in which populations do handle extreme cold, and be really helpful to the everyday person as well,
0: yeah, interesting. yeah. it just that's interesting to me the the you know we you talked about anthropology is not quite grasping this yet, but the relationship between culture and biology and how does your culture I you know it's weird because some people reduce it. Well, culture is just an extension of genetics, but it's in mm-hmm. some way that's true, but it's like I think that's oversimplifying it again, it just it just keeps reiterating the primacy of genetics, mm-hmm. right? which you know, I don't think you know, and people. Well, Darwin thought that's so yeah, because he started a lot of this. So yeah, it's not, <laughs> I go beyond him a little bit. Come on,
1: <laughs> what are you saying? Thoughts and theories can change with new evidence.
0: Yeah, no. I know academics no. are slow to appreciate this, but
1: <laughs> not like that's yeah. relevant at all to the woman the hunter argument.
0: <laughs> oh no, and you know I'm sure that won't come up. And you know, he's <laughs> receiving this very justly, and no one's upset at all. <laughs> So, talking about these studies, there are two of them, right? There's the archaeological evidence and the physiological evidence. Mm-hmm. For people that don't understand maybe the difference, how why is it important to talk about both of these? and why is it why do you need two two publications? Yeah, for that?
1: yeah. So one, I also want to be very, very clear that these are review articles. Sarah and I did right. not collect any of this data. Whatsoever, And so, you know, all the various media things that have come out from this is like, new study says this like, no, this shit has been around for a long time. We are taking a new take on it. We've added stuff that's happened, you know, since the 1980s, when this has been last written about with sincerity. Um, And obviously, you know, there's still a lot of resistance to it, as you have seen. And so why two? Uh, So a lot of the previous work, kind of the feminist human evolution work, was very much grounded in ethnography. So looking at, you know, modern hunter-gatherers and foragers of the time. Uh, And then we got a little bit more of the archaeological evidence as time passed on. But, you know, in the past 40 plus years, we've learned a ton more archaeologically. And so when I talk about archaeology in this, I'm talking about like the fossil record. Uh, I'm talking about the bones and the stones that are found in the ground, uh, you know, dating anywhere from like 10,000 years ago to, you know, 5 million years ago, uh, for example. That can be considered archaeology, also paleoanthropology, paleo being that past part. And the physiology part of this was actually one of the, the newest additions to this idea of woman the hunter. Uh, as I I'm, I'm, will come as no surprise to you and possibly a lot of your listeners, females are way understudied when it comes to exercise physiology. And I'm using female here in particular, as that is the way most exercise physiology studies define when they when they are looking at their participants. They use the the strict binary of female male. Very few of these mm-hmm. studies actually say how they're defining female and male. Um, so it's it's hard for any of us to parse out what they're actually using, other than potentially appearance or self-identification in that way. Uh, and so often when we talk about the, the strict physiology, we'll use male-female. Then when we talk about social structures and activities, we'll use woman and man. Um,
2: yeah.
1: And so, you know, there's there's been this long-standing idea, you know, stemming from man the hunter and and well beyond as well into the past. That females are, you know, the fragile sex. That you know, they have to get pregnant, they have to carry the baby to term, and then they have to do child rearing and lactating and all of that. And those mm-hmm. are things that would make them incapable of doing any sort of rigorous physical activity that would add to the subsistence practices. Um, and that hunting is much too risky; it's dangerous and they are much better served to doing the mindless. Literally they, they talk about the psychology of it, that female brains are better suited for prey that don't move. Um, The, the mindless Mm -hmm. non, I know, I know non challenging task, which is also bullshit of gathering various plant matter. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, Yeah,
0: No, it's what's interesting about that is, yeah, it's, and this is kind of an aside, kind of not. And people were like, well, these are just uh, the reviews, right? They're, they're not collecting data. They're just looking at what's there. And mm-hmm. they're like, well, what, how are you going to challenge anything? How is there anything new? But to me, that question comes up and it that operates on the assumption that previous data, any assumptions made off of it are are final, that there can be yeah. no new things based off of previous data that you need new data to make new conclusions and that just yeah, and doesn't make any sense to me
1: it doesn't make any sense and that's not how science works period right <laughs> okay. like you know a very tenet of science is that it should be changing and we should be improving and we should be reanalyzing and asking new questions all of this and, and people just kind of like blow that out of the mind you know like that just doesn't matter but also i never actually answered your question and so, like the physiology aspect, that was the, the new part of this, is of really looking at what are the physical capabilities of females? Would they actually be at a disadvantage trying to hunt? Would they be incapable of doing it? And when Sarah and I were writing this, we realized if we tried to shove all of this into one paper, no one would ever read it. Because it I would, would be read it. I mean, you would, but it would be so long, Artemis. <laughs> <You're right. laughs> I mean, like, it would just be unwieldy. And also journals often have word counts that we can't really go past. And um, that's socially
0: constructed. It's all right.
1: Yeah, exactly. And so, I mean, we ended up writing two separate papers and both of them were actually a bit beyond the word limit as is anyway. Uh, And but that is why we ended up doing two papers.
0: And where can people find
2: these?
1: Unfortunately, they are behind a paywall. Uh, but they are with American anthropologist and people can 100% email me and we will send pdf copies to you of those articles. Uh, we are not allowed to post things freely available online as part of our copyright agreement, but we can definitely share the pdfs via email.
0: Okay. Yeah, and so I remember, you know, Sarah was kind of talking about kind of the process of getting this in and that if I remember correctly, it was almost your your two papers were kind of sped run in, so to speak. There was kind of an acceleration to get them in. What did that there kind was, of, what did publishing kind of look like for the case of these papers? Yeah,
1: so I want to be very clear about this because I can totally see some trolls being like, oh, I knew you got, you know, favoritism.
2: special treatment, um, yeah. yeah.
1: The peer review process itself was not sped up in any way. Uh, the peer review process, we both submitted the articles at the same time. Um, One was accepted with minor revisions immediately. One had to go through a little bit deeper revisions. um, And then we waited to submit both sets of revisions until both papers were ready to go. They went through Mm. that second round of peer review. And then once both articles were accepted, that's when things got accelerated. uh, Because, yeah, Uh, so they had already been accepted. And normally, American anthropologists, it can take a year from the moment the article is accepted to when it comes out. That is a huge lag time, Uh, but Scientific American had contacted us and wanted us to write a popular version of these two articles because uh, one of the editors there saw the talks that we gave at the American Association of Biological Anthropology meetings, and she thought it was really interesting and wanted a Scientific American piece on it, and she had contacted us in the summer, which was like maybe a month before both pieces were accepted, Um, and we said like, yeah, sure, however, here's the problem. (laughs) American anthropologists can be really, really slow once things are accepted. And so once the the contract with Scientific American was signed, we contacted the, um, once the contract was signed and the papers had been accepted, we contacted the editor-in-chief of American Anthropologists, and they agreed to put the articles on fast track for actually getting them out post-acceptance. So it was a really fast timeline um, I mean, I think they got it done in three months instead of the 12 months to actually push it out to publication.
2: Okay, interesting. Yeah. And so I'm curious, in terms of the methods that, you, that went
0: into this,
2: mm.
0: what, and I guess this is, the fact that it is a review, the, these are review, have the methods faced criticism or anything like that? We're not talking so much about your conclusions. What were the mm-hmm. methods under any scrutiny at all?
1: So the methods of, like, what we decided to review, the information we decided to review, or the methods in the papers that we cite?
0: Yes, because I'm sure people could be like, well, what you're even looking at should be subject to criticism. You know what I mean? If it's a review, then what are you reviewing, I guess? But I'm curious. Per- yeah, I guess so kind of both and.
1: Um. So I would say no one is actually... I mean, we've been... Accused of cherry picking data. That is a thing that has definitely come up. And we have been accused of ignoring modern day foraging population data. And we can address all of those things. Uh, We Uh were also accused of not having not utilizing the scientific method, uh, or proposing and testing hypotheses which is a bit absurd because that's not what anyone ever does in a review paper. <laughs> that's what you do in an original research paper where you are right. actually conducting a study. And so those kinds of criticisms, I just kind of slough off because the person doesn't know what a review paper is. Um, oh,
2: okay.
1: Yeah. As for cherry picking, I don't think I agree with that as well because, and I mean, I guess you could call it cherry picking, but it's cherry picking pointedly to talk about the questions we are asking of, you know, right. what is female physiological performance under endurance conditions or strength conditions? So, of course, we're going to ignore male physiological performance because we're focusing on the question of female physiological performance. Um, and so I'm surprised
0: that, that talking about women, people are like, but what about the men?
1: Where always, do the men fit into this? Fucking hell. It's always a lot about the men. And then, of course, we can get into like, well, men are still out competing women in marathon times. I'm like, well, Great. Men today are out-competing men from 50 years ago in marathon times. Does that mean men 50 years ago couldn't have been capable of hunting? That's just fucking bullshit. Bullshit. Um, Like it's these all this and like yeah people today are running marathons to win if they're in these big races that's not what people in the past were doing they just had to telling me that long chasing
0: <laughs> ch- chasing an injured gazelle is not comparable yeah. to running a competitive marathon race right? oh, i
1: know i'm absolutely Funny, bonkers out of my mind and a feminazi so
0: <laughs> oh my god i even heard that term in a while that was well, that was like 27, that was like a 2015 phase for me, the 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 hating on the feminazis.
2: <laughs> That's a good one.
0: So the, so you hit the cherry-picking accusation, but this was the next question I had is in comparing in related to what you're talking about, how do hunting patterns of women in the Paleolithic compare to contemporary hunter-gatherer or foraging peoples? And a kind of similar question is, how should we go about connecting or contrasting or whatever the data from extant and extinct hunter-gatherer populations in relation to hunting behaviors? Like, how do we even go about using the data? Because it should be seen together, right? But it doesn't mean one cancels out the other, right?
1: Exactly. You know, both things can be true. Modern day foraging populations can provide valuable insight into our past. However, it doesn't mean that they are a one to one perfect match for what past behavior was like. And anytime that we. Yeah, they're not living fossils. They too have shifted and changed and evolved. Um, But also, anytime that we use hunter gatherers as a proxy or modern foragers as a proxy, if we have fossil evidence to test that as being a valid comparison, then anytime we use the modern foragers, it should actually match what we see in the fossil record. And, and here's right. where I have a big issue with the people who are like modern day hunter gatherers, most of them have a very strict sexual division of labor, fist pound, fist pound, fist pound, all the sorts of outrage. Um, and yeah, that's 100% true. Nowhere do we ever say that modern hunter gatherers do not have a strict, or at least the majority of modern hunter gatherers do not have a fairly strict sexual division of labor. There are plenty of examples of those that don't, Um, like the Bayaka of the Congo are a very egalitarian society. The Agta uh, uh, are also women hunt all the time among the Agta. So we have plenty of examples of where women don't just gather and men don't just hunt. Uh, However, it is true that the majority of hunter-gatherers today, males do the hunting, females do the gathering. This is how it is.
2: And so Mm -hmm. people,
1: especially those who study modern hunter-gatherers, have a big issue with this woman-the-hunter idea because they say, hey, but, 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 let's look at the Chimane, let's look at the Aceh, let's look at the Hadza, so on and so forth. They have a strict Mm -hmm. sexual division of labor. That's great. And I don't disagree with that. However, the evidence we have for the Paleolithic points to it being egalitarian. It points to females and males doing all of the same activities. We don't start getting evidence in the fossil record for sexual division of labor until about 30 or 40,000 years ago. And that's not even strong, consistent evidence. We don't start getting strong, consistent evidence of sexual division of labor until about 11,000 years ago. And so there is a big cultural shift going on from, you know, 30,000 years to 11,000 years and then even more recent. In which a sexual division of labor because, becomes the norm. But it seems from 30,000, 40,000 years and deeper into the past, that wasn't the norm. The norm was yeah. everyone had to be capable of doing everything.
0: Right. And I wonder how much of that relates to Hadza, for example. We had uh, someone named Jamie on a couple months ago. Jamie is an anthropologist and spent some time with the Hadza. That's part of like an ecotourist thing that the Hadza mm. engage in. And, um, you know, was talking about. And, you know, I, I can't spoil some stuff that, that this person's writing on, but we have talked about previously the relationship to the Bantu people, uh, you mm. know, these pastoralists and horticulturalists, right? Pushing them. Like, these people, it's not just like Europeans showed up and suddenly pushed the, the Hadza to marginal environments. They have been mm. under pressure from different types of subsistence lifestyles for a very long time. And this is true for a lot of hunter-gatherers that – Agriculture is not conducive to the diversity of life in most yeah. cases.
2: Mm-hmm. And so the
0: Hods have been pushed to marginal environments, much like other groups of hunter gatherers have, where agriculture, until recently with industrialized agriculture, could not have spread. Um, and that, so how much of the association of the division of labor, which seems to be a, a fairly efficient system for mm-hmm. aggregate societies, I guess is a long-winded way of saying what is the relationship between these marginal environments that these hunter gatherers, foraging people, have been pushed to, and the gender division of labor.
1: Yeah, I think if it's a all. way to yeah, and and I think this is also a key point that I'm sure Sarah touched on that mm-hmm. group size is a huge, huge, huge part of it. That when we when we yep. look at the Paleolithic, group sizes were much smaller. And we see among modern foraging, hunting, gathering populations today who benefit from having much larger group sizes and therefore they can break up the division of labor uh, so that some are doing some things and some are doing other things. And I absolutely think that both group size and the sexual division of labor is something that could have been really important to the success of humans as we get more recent in time because it kind of maximizes your resources. You know, you can send a group of folks off to hunt. Again, hunting is not always all that successful. It's often less likely to be successful than it is to be successful uh, in early groups. Uh, And then gathering can be done a little bit closer to home and provide a lot of the staple calories that people can do while also allowing kids to be looked after without having to take them on a hunt or anything else like that. And so I think it does allow you to maximize resource acquisition within an environment. Um, But if your group- And that
0: comes with the broad- Oh, I'm sorry. I totally cut you off.
1: Oh, that's okay. But I'm saying, you know, a smaller group can't do that. They, they they just don't have the numbers to be able to go out and big game hunt because you need a lot of people to do that and have half the group go off and gathering. They just weren't living in large enough groups to make that viable.
0: Yeah. Do you have, maybe you don't have the number on your head, but do we have an idea, like maybe percentage wise, the growth between Paleolithic foraging group size and contemporary? Like, do
1: we I have an idea? No, like it might be out there, but I think that is an interesting paper. So, a couple of scholars actually wrote a comment in in opposition to our Woman the Hunter paper. And a lot of the arguments they make are, you know, about modern day hunter gatherers and some of the physiology. And again, I, we, we make the same argument that it's got to match the fossil record and that potentially there's a really awesome potential to study the. Group size dynamic with an increase in sexual division of labor, evidence in the fossil record, and how that mm-hmm. might actually increase our, the human ability to reproduce more quickly than they would have, say, in the Paleolithic. If you have more people doing more jobs, bringing in more calories, you can have shorter periods of time in between birth. And so we know that's a fact. In the Paleolithic,
0: in the Paleolithic, there is long terms between birth for women.
1: Yeah, I mean, there's the, the lactational amenorrhea, to be sure. And of course, you know, you're going to have a, a fairly high amount of, you know, juvenile infant mortality going on as well. But the larger group sizes you have, the more people you can do to gather things, and the more mm-hmm. adult parents you can have, other people who can look after the kids.
0: Right, right. And, I, you know, you talk about the whole the limiting and like the carrying the child or caring for the child in a hunting party i remember i saw a comment someone's like oh of course carrying a child with you especially a young one who will cry had nothing would have no native impacts on hunting and correct me if i'm wrong when i read the paper i was like, i don't think they ever argued that they were braining their no. children on i was like no. i don't know where you're getting that because i think they were all they're both sensible enough to know yeah you don't brain a kid on a hunt
1: That's not not happening. No, and we also got the wonderful comments and like, well, of course, then this means that males were lactating and pregnant. I'm like, come on, motherfuckers. Even you trolls are better than this.
2: uh, That's even the (laughs) men were lactating.
0: No, that's just the liberal woke agenda, I believe, though.
1: Right, it is. It is. None of what we say is based in any science whatsoever. And for you listeners, I hope you understand that my comments are dripping with sarcasm at the moment.
2: Yeah,
0: unfortunately, we can't have the, what is it, the, the to- text tone, the slash S, or whatever That's- those are called, the tone <laughs> tags. We can't have those verbally. Um, I, I asked Sarah this, and, I, and we're kind of dancing around this part of the evidence. Bones and injuries. This was yeah. something new to me. I did know about this, like Neanderthals and Homo sapiens did have similar bone injuries and and, mm-hmm. tr- and things like that, but I did not know this was true for in group gender, that women yep. have at the same rate yeah. of, of, of these. Same of What are of very group. obviously hunting injuries.
1: Well, I mean, so that's what we assume that they are from, but let's just even say they aren't. Let's pretend they aren't from hunting injuries. No matter what they're from, because we see them across genders, or we. We should say sex in this. It's very hard to understand gender identity in the past, especially this deep in the past when we don't get a lot of grave goods or anything like that. But no matter what, having the same injury patterns and use wear patterns, that means they were doing the exact same things.
2: Whatever Whether that it, thing was.
1: Uh-huh. And I mean, there was the analysis mm-hmm. among Neanderthals that I'm sure Sarah talked about relating Neanderthal injuries to rodeo clown injuries. Uh, yes. Yes. <laughs> The greatest fucking study ever. And of course, got misconstrued as people thinking that means Neanderthals were like riding woolly mammoths.
2: (laughs) No, but I would Um, like to. Hey,
0: so there's a video (laughs) I actually know Sarah from that is the reacting to Far Cry Primal. And you can do that in that game. So again, you can't (laughs) deny, you can't confirm,
1: but you also cannot deny that Neanderthals weren't riding mammoths. True, true. However, counterpoint rodeo clowns aren't the ones riding the bulls or the horses either
2: oh well hey it's the now rodeo you got
1: riders that are you know riding it and the injuries match the rodeo clowns
2: whoa so
1: there
0: we go <laughs> I, I guess you got me there
1: pull it out of the water right then and there but yeah and so this is the other thing and you know, as you saw the twitter like the hoops the mental hoops people will jump through to justify their pre-existing beliefs instead of actually looking at the evidence in an unbiased way you know, one person's like, who cares that they had the same injuries? Clearly, it must have been because women were running away from the animals that they were hunting. And I'm like, what? well, then why wouldn't the men also be? Like, why I'm not following that, one. that same?" I know, right? Like, oh, and then someone also said, have you ever heard of relay races? It doesn't matter that men might what? not be as good at long endurance running because they could have used relay races to get the animals.
2: Huh? Yeah. I wish you could see my visible confusion. Yeah.
1: Yeah.
2: Unfortunately, this is an
0: audio-only podcast.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yes, the things, the things that we have been told, and that we have been blamed for the existence of women firefighters. Uh, So you know, we have that kind of power, Artemis.
0: (laughs) of course. Um, I guess this this is a similar thing. So I asked Sarah this, and I have a lot of interest in this. So you know, if it's not clear from the podcast that this with all irony and knowledge that we are very critical of industrial technology, civilization, agriculture, right? Primitivist is a term that is used sometimes. And so we're really interested in the anthropology of why does this exist? How did we get to this point of mass society? And part of that, uh, there's someone named John Zurzan who's been writing about this since the eighties. Well, I guess even earlier than that, but particularly this idea of Something happened, and you talked about eleven thousand years ago. Something happened in the Upper Paleolithic. It seems perhaps it was the law and development, but there seems to have been, in a sense, a switch that's flipped in the Upper Paleolithic or Mesolithic, right? Depending, what seems to do that for the division of labor? Why is there seemingly a very sudden change? Is it the hall? Is it something to do with the climate and the end of the little ice age of the Ice Age, or is it something else?
1: You know, honestly, I am not entirely sure. Um, And I'm not even comfortable uh, attempting to address it because this is much more Sarah's realm than it is my realm. Uh, Mm -mm. And so this is one of those that I'm not going to put my foot in my mouth. (laughs) I'm not going to conjecture wildly as much as people think this whole concept is conjecture. Uh, No, that's rather than data. And I know my stuff. Uh, but this one question, I do not know, and so I'm not even gonna try
2: because
0: <laughs> what I wish I had brought up with her and it's one of those hindsights is this timeline that that you both express lines up with what people call the you know the broad, the broad oh uh, the broad now blanking on it, the broad revolution, the idea of we move from hunting just megafauna primarily to smaller <laughs> animals as well. And if that's you say eleven thousand years ago, that's about when that happens as well.
2: And so if we're talking about a
0: division of labor, a division of labor seems to correlate to this expanse of what you're hunting. That seems to line up pretty well with the division of labor is we're expanding what we're doing in this region. So we need people to specialize in it because it's Uh, not just everyone can learn how to do this one thing.
1: No, absolutely. That's true. But there's also a caveat to that in that modern humans, period, even before 11,000 years ago, we're still hunting small, uh, small animals. And I think the the big distinction we need to make here is about the environment. And so you see mm-hmm. a lot more like big fauna hunting, megafauna hunting in higher latitudes, colder climates. And then you'll see yeah, much yeah. more smaller animal hunting uh, in in warmer climates. And so that has been going on for a while, just like this idea that Neanderthals were these strict carnivores eating more meat than a lion or whatever. That's fucking bullshit, too., uh, and you know, Neanderthals lived in a lot of different locations with a wide variety of diets, too. Uh, so we always need to be careful with these blanket assumptions that everyone everywhere at this particular time was doing this one thing, and that's so very rare as to basically be non-existent. <laughs>
0: that's such a great point. And what I was referring to earlier was the broad spectrum revolution. That's what I was um
1: mm. I
0: was trying to look for, uh, which also came out in like the six in like sixty eight or something from, I think it's Flannery, if I remember correctly. I just look up the name. Which is um, right
1: around the same time as Man the Hunter. The, the that's actual, what that was. I was, was going to, yeah.
0: <laughs> I was that was kind of my next. I was you you beat my segue. Is kind of where <laughs> does and I know what the answer is, but for the audience, we talked about this with huh. Sarah as well. Where does the notion of the female as gatherer come from? But more importantly, why does it persist, and what is reinforcing that today?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And so I think we're, oh, sorry, kitten is trying to chew the headphone cord. That's not good. Yes, go play with the fire. That's clearly a better idea. Um, I have a fire in the fireplace, and the kitten is probably going to lose his whiskers at some point today. Uh, So, right, man the hunter. And so, you know, credit to the, you know, Lee and DeVore, who were the ones who put together the man the hunter conference. Uh, and mm-hmm. which then became an, an edited volume two years later. The conference was in 1966, and the edited volume came out in 68. A lot of it was based on the modern ethnography at the time, which means, of course, it's also limited to the various groups that were actually looked at at that time. And they did see a division of labor. I, I am not disputing that in any way, shape or form, where they saw males who do the hunting and females who do the gathering for the most part. Although there's a a chapter by Watanabe that, you know, takes a look at the Ainu uh, population and where he even says women are hunting, but then he totally discounts it and talks about the importance of men hunting and men only. Uh, And so they kind of ignore their own evidence there. And then there's this whole section in the book talking about evolution, human evolution. And they kind of revolve this story, like looking at modern day foragers that, well, if this is what they're doing now, then let's project this back into the past to try to reconstruct the ways in which hunting may have been a driving force in human evolution, making us the humans we are today with the unique suite of features we have today. And so that's kind of how this man the hunter theory came about. It was taking what they saw today and projecting it onto the past and figuring out the ways in which if this were true, how it would have shaped our evolutionary trajectory.
0: Mm-hmm yeah you know to speak to that by the way the Man the hunter symposium and, and what came after it is i also want to you know we've it's kind of come under fire on this podcast but i want to affirm that like how important it was generally speaking for overturning this idea that it's you know the hobbesian poor brutish short-lived right how much of it was mm-hmm. important in reiterating and expanding that right and kind of i'm a big fan of solin's i can and lee and all mm-hmm. them and and you know like the original affluent society and how that relates to all of this. And now it's not all perfect, right? Mm -hmm. Obviously we have this, but like, all right. I don't think we have as good of an understanding of hunter gatherers without that symposium, right? Or even just generating the discussion about it. And yeah, there's debate, but that debate's important.
1: Exactly. Because you don't have
0: this debate without that.
1: I think it was, you know, absolutely. It was a product of the time. It was a product of the data that we had. And also a product of the people who are doing the work, which was largely white men, and so mm-hmm. they come at it from the perspective of a white male, uh, which means they they end up, whether they mean to or not, focusing more heavily on what other males are doing. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that's an important thing too. And you know, I've gotten so many comments of just like, oh, well, yeah, Carol was a powerlifter who faced sexism, so now she's on, you know, this war path to bring down all these quote unquote sexist ideas. Um And, yeah, I recognize that my bias, that I am a, a woman and I am a, a white woman in this position and one of power to some degree, and that my experiences have absolutely shaped my worldview, that doesn't mean mm. I'm wrong. <laughs> it doesn't mean that what Sarah Exception. and I are saying is wrong based on that, right. that alone.
2: <laughs> right. Because it's
0: also, again, and this what I was trying to talk about earlier is that I I mentioned this, but I didn't say it directly is that the that assumes all this assumes the original data had no agenda of its own. Correct. Right that so, oh I mean, you're it, trying to fix this original fact it's like but do you think that like for example when we first come and meet Indi- when Europeans come to you know America and they meet the indigenous people the way they're documenting it oh they're all cannibals and they practice mm-hmm. incest it's like you don't know, me that they may not have been trying to project a certain image for political reasons.
1: Yeah. And I mean With Man the Hunter, who knows if there were political intentional reasons? I mean, there's a. Most of me wants to believe it was not intentional, that a lot of this was probably the unconscious bias of the time uh, and who was doing the work. We all come to the table with our own unconscious biases, which is why everyone. Yeah. yeah, Which is why everybody encourages having diverse research groups so that no one's coming in with the same bias that's just going to reiterate that bias over and over and over again and bake it into every assumption. and it's also the idea that this man, the hunter is, quote unquote, fact, that it was hunting that shaped our trajectory. Uh, and that's just yes. not true. And any any good paleoanthropologist today will tell you, yeah, no, we don't really see sexual division of labor until 11,000 years ago. Everybody's doing everything because it's a tough life. <laughs> is it sure fair course- to say
0: that hunting is, you know, I, I it's interesting why we move from how do i want to say this This kind of like fruit of i know our closest cousins are not true for divorce but i know we tend to use that term a lot for them we move from that to what probably might have been this kind of opportunistic scavenging to more Mm -hmm. intense hunting with time right Mm -hmm. so hunting is important but this association of Hunting with the male is misconstruing the importance of hunting in our evolution. Is that maybe a, a, a way to express it in some Absolutely. way?
1: Absolutely. And, you know, it extends even further to it misconstru- misconstrues the importance of meat consumption. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, think of the liver king and, you know, all other people like the oh, paleo God. diet. Da da da, da 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 And when you actually look at the paleo diet, it was highly varied. It varied from season to season. It varied from location to location. And it varied over time. Because humans mm. are really wonderful at exploiting at whatever is available in the moment to keep themselves right. going.
0: Right. I mean, to me, yeah, the only way you can be a, a paleo diet person is eating what grows seasonally locally. If you can yeah. do that, wow, congratulations. Your paleo diet. Are you eating meat from a grocery store? Sorry. No, you're not.
2: Yep. <laughs> Did you hunt it yourself? Are you, also, you are, you, are, you yeah. are you eating honey?
1: Are you
0: eating honey? Right, maybe some wild grain, perhaps.
1: <laughs> no,
0: no? Oh, no, sorry. Sorry, no. Yeah. Um, I, no good segue for this, but kind of jumping maybe <laughs> into more your, your specifics, um, or maybe your more specialty is, a friend asked, wanted me to ask this question, and I hope I'm phrasing it correctly how they want it, in that it's even correct, is how relevant is the lower muscle mass of an average woman? How does that relate? to the ability for endurance hunting? Like maybe what are the conceptions of like muscle abilities for yes. people with high estrogen versus low estrogen?
1: Yeah, so let's talk about this is particularly lower muscle, lower body muscle mass, right? Lower muscle, lower body muscle mass or lower muscle mass period?
0: Lower, I think they meant lower muscle mass period. Ah, lower just, muscle maybe mass period. Lower okay. body. So, because, yeah.
1: because we can also talk about the lower body tube Is a new paper just kind came out that Relatively speaking, when you control over body size, females tend to have more lower body muscle mass, so stronger legs and back, whereas males tend to have more upper body muscle mass, so chest and
2: mm-hmm.
1: arms. Uh, we yeah, talked yeah. about that too. But so, one thing to be aware of is that muscle is freaking expensive. Um, even mm-hmm. muscle you aren't using takes energy to keep alive and keep healthy. Uh, you don't see a lot of really muscular marathon runners out there, do you? No. Like, no, no, no you don't. Because trying to carry that weight around is really disadvantageous. And so having a lower body mass, and because females have a lower body mass overall and lower muscle mass, that can actually be advantageous in some ways because they don't spend as much physically moving their bodies because there isn't as much to move. And so that can yeah. also help contribute to the fact that females tend to fatigue slower than males do. Males will hit the fatigue wall sooner than females will.
0: hmm also, I want people. If you're curious about this, like, look up what a hunter gatherer looks like. These men do not have sitz pad. They do not look like what they're described always as of being, in, like the kind yeah. of the cave bear. They're not. They're not. <laughs> they're not in the gym. I'm sorry. They're not sex madness in the gym.
2: <laughs>
0: <laughs> you know, talk about muscle, I think people have a weird idea what hunter gatherers might actually look like. Yeah.
1: yeah. You know, the,
0: oddly, they had kind of sometimes some of them have kind of those dad bods, and I find
2: that. It's,
1: I mean, having a little bit of having a bit of extra pooch can actually be really helpful. It's become Mm -hmm. super Not that this is particularly relevant to this exact conversation. but People who, you know, make crazy attempts to climb Mount Everest or any of the other like big seven peaks. A lot of them will put on extra fat leading up to it because they know they won't eat once they actually are exposed to the high altitude because it's. It fucks up your your desire to eat and your actual uh, appetite. And so they put on extra fat just to survive the harshness of the climate. So like, right. it doesn't surprise me if there's a certain amount of food insecurity, you might want to have a bit of a paunch because that paunch could save your life.
0: Right. There's a reason. I mean, there's a fact that we shame that stuff now, but there are practical reasons. It's food store, food storage, sugar storage. Yeah. You know? So, yeah, I find I just find that interesting because, you know, we talked about the sports. We we're talking about the earlier well, women don't compete. You know, they're not at the top competitors, but it's like in endurance. And I know we we said that marathon running is not comparable in the same way, but the, the further distance you account for, the
2: mm-hmm.
0: the smaller that gap becomes. But my interest with that is we're, if that's true and women fall within between men, right? It's not just all men win and then the women come in after. Are you, are you, if that's your argument, kind of like the 50 years ago, they weren't performing the same, what only the top male runners, hunters?
1: No, I can't imagine that. Like anyone who was <laughs> able, physically able to hunt in these small paleolithic groups of people, everyone was doing it. Like, right. If you are physically yeah. capable of doing it, you had to do it because that's what you needed to do to survive. Um, and if we talk about allo
2: parents, oh, sorry, go on.
1: No, no, that's fine. Allo parents, yeah. If,
0: if we talk about allo parents and we acknowledge that, and that it, it takes a village, or this idea, say, like, well, mm-hmm. if the woman has her child to take care of. I'll say, yeah. How many other people are there that are not hunting yeah. at the time that a woman mm-hmm. couldn't? I just don't get that. Like this, by you know, people call this, oh, this is modernistic, this is postmodern. That biology is not deterministic that this idea of this woman is always attached to a child at the hip okay if that's true don't women work today away from their kids? i
1: know how dare we then clearly then you know this should be projected onto the past but not um you know like again the mental hoops people will go through to justify these things uh, but there's this awesome study actually among two modern day african groups that infants are cared for on average by 24 different individuals
2: Wow. But-
1: Granted, these are big groups. These are really big groups. And so perhaps in the small Paleolithic groups, only one person could stay behind and actually watch any and all the kids uh, where everyone else went out hunting. Um, But again, yeah, alloparents are everywhere. And the role of grandmothers, like the grandmother hypothesis has been around for a while. And the thought is, is that the the grandmother hypothesis in our long post-reproductive lifespans Could have come about like 1.6 million years ago um, or to about 150,000 years ago, which is a fairly big range. But that's deep history right there. Even the 150,000 years ago, the idea that grandmothers would have been around to help take care of infants so that the the younger folks who might be a bit more vigorous could actually go out and get the foods, depending on the roles grandmothers played. Because I'm sure some of them still went out and got the foods too, like some do today. Yeah,
0: Yeah, and again, too, it's like this idea that, Oh well, she could care for her kid, so she's foraging. It's like, but are there or like foraging for plant material? It's like, but do you think there wouldn't be any problem with carrying a kid while you're out doing that? Carrying a crying right. kid in the wilderness that isn't also carrying danger. You
1: freaking dig one meter deep for tubers all day and do that with an yeah. infant on your back. <laughs> and not even that, but what are you
0: attracting when you have a crying yeah. infant?
1: Mm-hmm, absolutely. Like, oh,
0: but then you're, but then they're close to home, so they have people. It's so like, yeah. But if you think that women can't do anything, so maybe there's men there who might be willing that are not always hunting, but are perhaps partaking in like, the care of they be the out hunting? <laughs> right. it's, it just doesn't, it just, it's one of those, if you think about it for five minutes,
2: mm.
0: it just doesn't really add up. That this strict division of labor, women at home, men gone, but that doesn't, right? And so even today, like we have the, a, a fairly strict division of labor, but here's the thing: still not as strict as, as up until recent modernity, in terms mm-hmm. of the sexual division of labor, right? There's a division yeah. of labor that's growing, but it's not sexual, right? It's a yeah. it's a large, yeah. That's a whole other kind of thing. It just doesn't really make sense. So I wanted to I wanted to ask you this because I asked Sarah, but she was not as familiar, in perhaps you are. I've, are you familiar with the? I believe they're based out of London. They are European. The Rad Radical Anthropology Group, like Chris Knight. No. So they have this idea, uh, Camilla Power has posited this, like the sex, and maybe it's not theirs, but they've developed it, the sex strike theory that from our more chimp-like ancestors that are, for lack of a better word, patriarchal, I, It's not I, that's a human social term, I don't want to apply, but for their lack of a better word, that women used social bonds to enforce like egalitarianism on alpha males, like you're not going to have sex, we're not giving that to you. Well, basically like, the, the agency, the decision to, we will benefit, we benefit more from men who are not going to abuse us or use us and that we want meat and that you're gonna help us care for the kid, right? So there's a sex strike theory and I'm simplifying it obviously, but yeah. there's posits that women then have to stay at home and that our egalitarianism is actually rooted in that division of labor.
1: Yeah, see, I don't know. I, like that, that's the kind of thing that it's an untestable hypothesis for the past um, mm-hmm. And I, I'm not really familiar if they have found any modern day groups that replicate that kind of thing, um, yeah. because that's just not an area I, I really go into. I, I right. just, again, I, I just think that there's no way that they could have afforded a division of labor, whether it's like I'm withholding sex or whatever. No, everyone had to be able to do everything. The males had to do domestic, quote unquote, activities like Mm -hmm. processing hides we have evidence for males processing hide among neanderthals and females also have the the teeth
2: injuries like the teeth yeah yeah Yeah.
1: exactly 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 and so yeah i I don't see evidence for that and i'm not sure what evidence someone could look for for that uh but i mean it's a hypothesis and one that could be tested at some point i'm sure
0: it's also one of those why does it only have to be one why couldn't there have been multiple things you know and I'm uh, you, this idea that like really all hunter gatherer groups, we talked to. There's no monolith of hunter gatherer, no, right? These exactly. extremely localized. Yeah, you're gonna see incredible diversity. Yeah, obviously, we do see diversity today in contemporary hunter gatherers, right? That, no, that's
1: exactly it. And yeah. the, the thought that everyone has to be behaving the exact same way and that that's just bullshit. I mean, it it completely defies what we see among humans now, and it'll completely defy what we see among humans in the future. Variation. Is the only constant.
0: Mm-hmm. So I just uh, in in relation to that question, is there the possibility then that we see maybe something analogous? So today's contemporary hunter gatherers and their and at least in terms of their hunting behaviors as gendered, could, is mm-hmm. it possible then that those things might have existed in the Paleolithic, even if they were a minority?
1: Absolutely, absolutely. Right, and you know, hell for all I know, there was one particular group that was actually at a strict sexual division of labor. And they were the ones who were able to produce kids faster because of what we talked about. And maybe they lived in larger groups. And perhaps that behavior spread from like a group. I don't know. If that's a complete bullshit story I just made up, but it's entirely right. possible. Uh, right. I mean, it's just technically as
0: possible as the set stripe theory, right? If we can't yeah, see exactly.
1: it. Exactly. I mean, we do see this kind of thing with tools where, like, yes. all of a sudden yeah. you'll see this new tool technology just pop up in one location. And then all of a sudden you start seeing it all over within a fairly short period of time, which means there is this cultural exchange of ideas.
0: There is a really great podcast called Our Prehistory. And that's a big part of like particularly like tropical Africa or when they're living on like the borders of several ecosystems, right? Mm-hmm. That one tool works really well. And then other groups realize that tool works really well here. But not only that, but the 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 raw materials that go into that tool Mm -hmm. not every group has access to every type of material but it transfers so you're telling me those cultural attitudes like symbols the use of ochre or like Mm -hmm. language or any other like maybe ritual like that probably yeah yeah, it might have appeared in different places at different times but it seems to have spread from somewhere
2: Mm -hmm.
0: or from some places you know so i find that's all really interesting and again just this idea that people will acknowledge it for some issues but not mm-hmm. others i just don't quite grasp that oh
1: my anymore. gosh i lost my shit the other day artemis so some evolutionary psychologist was blasting the paper on twitter but of course not tagging me or sarah in it and you know coming up with with you know why it's wrong and that it doesn't matter that we find females being buried with hunting implements uh, or it doesn't matter that they have the same injury rates. They could have been doing this, 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 and this. And then, like, two days later, I see her post an argument against something else. Like, oh, they didn't provide the most parsimonious explanation. So this is just junk. And I'm like, God damn it, woman. The most parsimonious explanation for our paper that everyone has the same injuries and they're being buried with the same sort of hunting implements. The most parsimonious explanation is that they're all doing the same things, but clearly, that doesn't apply to women hunting. <laughs> like it just blows right. my mind.
0: So, what is it about? We I think we talked about this. I know we talked about before we recorded. Maybe we have during the recording. What is it with evolutionary psychologists that? Where does the conflict arise there in your evidence with people who seem to be within that camp or that tendency of of studying history? Why are they so cautious? Is there just more evidence within their field that contradicts, not so much contradicts, but seems to contradict yours?
1: I actually love the fact that you use the word cautious because I find some evolutionary psychologists to be the least scientifically cautious people ever. Um, So (laughs) I want to be careful here because I don't want to have this blanket statement apply to all evolutionary psychology. There are evolutionary psychologists out there who do really good work and valid work. There is a subset of evolutionary psychologists that really do look at modern behavior today, assume that it has an evolutionary root, and then apply everything into the past as a way to justify behavior today or come up with why they think the behavior is the way it is today. And all of this assumes that behavior has not changed over time. Uh, So Mm. that's why I have this huge issue with evolutionary psychology is that so much of the junk evolutionary psychology, not the good stuff, but the junk, looks at today and thinks it must have a deep root and that it justifies what we are today and so you'll see this whole thing like again man the hunter that you know it is there's this evolutionary reason that males are more aggressive and rape is just you know this natural side effect of it all that's just fucking bullshit (laughs) no 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 you cannot use behavior today and give it an evolutionary reason to justify the shitty behavior we're seeing among people here and now
0: I mean, that's the type of shit, too. It's like, well, that can justify so much type of shit. And, I mean, actually yeah. justify. It's like, you know, I mean, we think about war. Like, we've always done war, which, A, not true. That's yeah. that's also not true. I mean, we don't see, I don't, at least from, you know, I haven't looked into this particular part of archaeology and anthropology in a while, but, like, I don't think there's any evidence for human, extensive outgroup human conflict until about eleven, you know, eleven or twelve thousand years ago. About which the time also of the
1: lines up with a sexual division of labor and potentially larger groups of people, and larger groups of people likely lead to more conflict. We just solved yeah. it, Artemis. We're done. We have solved the yeah. entire story of human evolution.
2: Yeah, and
0: You know what's funny, know too, is that. also, is that with that, actually, with that rise, and Mesolithic, Neolithic, Neolithic, Neolithic is it the male human population bottlenecks because of the mm. conflict? Of a... mm. so,
2: yeah, That's another one go. I always
0: find interesting. People are like, I, you know, they have this, almost this worship of war. It's like, well, I mean, men do like it, so if you, you know, by all means, please go ahead. Are you the one fighting, or are you probably not?
1: Oh, yes. That no, was another comment. Issues. I feel like this is just becoming an airing of grievances of trolls. I apologize for listeners. Oh, I love uh, it. <laughs> but it makes me sound bitter and angry. And now I've just got a warm cup of tea and a fire, and so I'm just letting fly. Um, so what was the other one that, oh, yes, you know, feminists are all for equal rights until they try to conscript women. I'm like, who actually huh? says that? Yeah, no, no, no. Like, or, you know, a draft and dwarves women. I'm like...
0: Oh my god.
1: Yeah, I know. I know. Okay, I've had
0: this with students is they always say, equal rights, equal fights, right? That's the Mm -hmm. one. It's like, so your argument is the only way to have rights is you should be subject to violence. But that also precludes the idea that violence wasn't happening to those people already.
1: Uh Uh-huh. The violence has been happening for a very, very long time, just in a not as obvious form when it doesn't involve tanks (laughs) Mm
0: -hmm. yeah um kind of pulling it back to this your findings a little bit and maybe we've answered this but maybe there's some specifics you want to talk touch on or what are some common misconceptions about a woman's anatomy and her capacity for physical activity maybe maybe in this i didn't have this but perhaps in relation to pregnancy or like post-pregnancy, like, you know, lactation and stuff like that.
1: Yeah, I feel like this is such a modern invention that pregnancy should be considered a disease or a disability Mm. and that pregnant individuals are incredibly fragile and any slight jarring will cause a miscarriage and therefore our species would just collapse in on itself if females or any pregnant individuals did something quote-unquote rigorous. Um, And I mean, if you look at medical guidelines, they're so incredibly out of date about, you know, the kinds of physical activities pregnant people can and should be doing. And like, I'm just now going to repeat myself. It's so out of date um, that, no, (laughs) I'm pretty sure. And again, this is me just kind of conjecture at this point, however, that paleolithic individuals couldn't just not do anything for nine months while they were pregnant or for the two years that they were lactating. They can't just, if we're going to, you know, make this a cartoon right now, sit in the cave this whole time and expect everybody to pick up the slack for them. You don't fucking see that in the rest of the mammalian kingdom. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Pregnant mammals have to continue to find food up until the moment they give birth. And then they have to leave their offspring fairly quickly afterwards to continue to get food so that they and their offspring do not die. And Why many do the that way?
2: themselves without coping.
1: They, they don't get biparental care across the mammalian kingdom. The vast majority do not. There's very rarely food sharing in, in, right. in the, the mammal kingdom. Like that's a very human thing to do. Um so. Yeah, that's part of It's like all of a sudden humans are super special and extra fragile and need to be taken care of in a different way during pregnancy and lactation. However, there there are two thoughts I have on this. The first one is is all evidence actually looking at pregnant individuals and exercise. Exercising while pregnant will do nothing but give you benefits. If you have a normal healthy pregnancy, if you are somebody who has preeclampsia or something else, Like, obviously, you're going to need to follow your doctor's orders. But if you have a normal, healthy pregnancy, then physical activity, maintaining a similar routine to what you were doing and perhaps slowing down as things get uncomfortable when you're carrying 25 extra pounds is better for you and better for the offspring in every single way. And individuals who maintain high levels of physical activity actually experience shorter labor and an easier delivery than those who don't. I'm sure someone's going to
0: sound like this and be like, Tara is actually saying if you're pregnant, being a powerlifter a marathon runner, that's what she's saying you can do. Then there'll be no, no possible. I
1: also kind of am like there are powerlifters. I have seen squat 300 plus pounds in their ninth month of pregnancy. Um, You know, Sophie power. Yeah, I know Sophie power. Who's, you know, in the scientific American piece, as well as the American anthropologist pieces, she ran an ultra marathon three months after giving birth, which means she was Holy training. shit. Exactly. She was training while pregnant and running that marathon while lactating. Like, don't tell me people who are pregnant are fucking fragile. They are the strongest people out there.
2: That's a, That's a lot to process because yeah, I didn't I did not know about that mm. at all. But also I think yeah. this is
0: another thing. Um, is like, and I know this is epigenetics, and it's a lot of other things, but like our bodies have changed Mm -hmm. since ten thousand years ago because of agriculture, and then you know, sedentism, agriculture, industry, all those things. Right, Mm -hmm. the female body has shifted in many ways, and that pregnancy, from my understanding, has become harder. Mm -hmm. And And so, like, part of me wonders if
1: that's related to the dip in physical activity. Absolutely.
0: Oh, and one might have to wonder, right? Because if you're forced, you know, kind of, this isn't quite the same thing, but the morphology of certain ants as a caste system, right? And reinforcing that physical, those physical traits, right? I know it's not one-to-one, but I still find it interesting. Yeah. So this is the last question I have about the study, um, or it's not so much the study, but broadly about, you know, physiology yeah. and hunter-gatherers is... How has the balance of hormones, particularly testosterone and estrogen, changed since the Paleolithic, if we know? And how do modern contemporary like US populations compare to contemporary hunter-gatherers in the balance of hormones?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And this is also something that was brought up in that comment that was kind of arguing against what we said that modern day ranges of estrogen and testosterone are much higher. There are a lot of, you know, exogenous hormones that we take into our bodies nowadays that would not have been existed in the Paleolithic. Uh, mm-hmm. But here's the rub on that one, that we also see a pretty broad range of estrogen levels across modern humans today, whether they're from foraging societies or industrial populations or whatever, you know, what would be considered a low non-functional estrogen level in the United States, is completely normal and functional in a different population elsewhere in the world, uh, right. and so the levels of hormones are functional, and that range can vary a huge degree. So just because there were lower estrogen levels among females in the Paleolithic, doesn't necessarily mean that they had a lower endurance ability. Their bodies were tuned to that range of hormones, um, and right. you know right. this is. This is what people often get wrong about, you know, talking about testosterone levels and what it does and in all these things. That there is this broad range of what's normal for a person. And anytime you're putting exogenous hormones and you think about like steroid use, performance enhancing drug use, you're not just going to you know, mess with your muscles and make you big and strong. You're going to mess with every single physiological function that relies on testosterone. Um, that's Mm -hmm. used to operating within this normal range. And once you push out of that normal range, you're going to see a lot of different things going on. That was a total sidebar, sorry. Um, But yeah, there's a broad range of functional estrogen levels. And I am fully capable of understanding that there are higher levels today in modern humans and modern female athletes. Um, But there's absolutely no reason to expect that lower estrogen levels in the past would have made estrogen less functional.
0: Right, and I guess I thought Sarah, and I'm I'm probably totally speaking around to She said something about like the testosterone levels of men as you get older. It's something like they actually meet the levels of contemporary hunter gatherers. There's something yeah. about like we're so fascinated because everyone's like, "Well, look, uh young people younger and younger have lower testosterone levels than they did a couple of years ago." And mm-hmm. you know that's very like gloom and doom, like this like male alpha male oh, thing yeah. going
2: on. But you it's like, get, like did anyone ever say, ask? Yeah.
0: Did any did anyone ever ask, like, are these the levels we should have had or something like that? Yeah. Like, there's something going on, perhaps?
1: I mean, no, I mean, people are doing that work now, looking at the ways in which exogenous hormones. And I'm sorry, when I say exogenous, I mean not made by the body. So they're mm. being taken in by the environment, whether intentionally or whether unintentionally in, you know, the various meats and dairies that we consume and we get hormones from all of that, too. Um, and so... Yeah, people are actually looking at the ways in which exogenous hormones are altering, say, um, age at first menstruation. Like that has gotten younger and younger and younger because of the exogenous hormones uh, that that are going around these days. And so people are actually looking into this.
2: Mm. Yeah, so I just for that,
0: it's like, what is like, we talked about estrogen. What about testosterone in particular? Like, is there anything that's interesting about that? Perhaps you could speak to in, contem- in like contemporary hunter gatherer testosterone levels because I think Ooh, when people I think hunter gatherers, there's like the man, the hunter is like, oh, this super buff, like he's this alpha man, almost like almost this like this this male hypermasculine dream. Does that actually hold yeah. up genetically? But almost,
1: I would, I would say no, highly unlikely. Um, so, a couple of things is one that we know that there is a dip in testosterone after becoming a father. Uh, especially those who are actually taking part in child care. Uh, and that's the idea of the dad bod, that the lower the testosterone, you end up putting on more fat and you know, not able to maintain the muscle mass quite as much. Uh, and so we see testosterone changes throughout a lifespan. You even see testosterone changes throughout the day. This is why testosterone testing for sports, particularly among females, um, is pretty bullshit. Uh, I mean, unless you're looking for levels that are so high as to be, Taken in by performance enhancing drugs, testing it otherwise is ridiculous. Anyway, um so there is that. And what was the other thing I was going to say? I lost my mind. So oh, it also comes down to the idea that testosterone is just this end all be all of everything that testosterone rules our life. And there's even a book, you know, testosterone, the hormone that like, dominates us all. And God damn it, testosterone has been physiologically active in organisms for about half the time that estrogen has been physiologically active in organisms. Yeah, right? So we can't actually date when hormones come about, but we can date when hormone receptors came about. And it Uh seems that the the earliest hormone receptor is somewhere between 600 million and 1.2 billion years old whereas the testosterone receptor is at 300 to 600 million. So the testosterone receptor is actually a duplicate of the estrogen receptor and came about way, 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 way later. And so this idea that testosterone is this all-dominating hormone completely denies and ignores the evolutionary history of steroid hormones in physiology. And this is why estrogen is an incredibly important hormone hormone for all bodies and for all body systems across mm-hmm. animals, because it has been around for a very, very, very long time. I'm sure you've heard of androgen insensitivity disorder. Yeah. Yeah. So we're like people can produce testosterone, but their bodies don't actually recognize it. Mm-hmm. And I mean, it's not super common, but you've heard about it and you see it. That's how common estrogen insensitivity disorder is.
0: So, I Assuming mean, not at all.
1: Yeah, pretty much. There have been three documented cases, uh, and it's only among one particular estrogen receptor that doesn't even do a whole lot. Because there are multiple different estrogen receptors, and those people suffered some major consequences, um, like mm. major cardiovascular issues throughout life. Uh, and like, I am a firm believer that if the most important estrogen receptors were not functioning, that would be incompatible with life, completely incompatible mm. with life
0: i mean people and again i talked about this with sarah and what's so funny is i know people that have legitimately believed and still believe men don't have estrogen and women
2: (laughs) don't have testosterone testosterone. what's funny
0: is if you have low estrogen you do not uh, you cannot build muscle or contain muscle stamina the same way Uh
1: uh-huh also you feel weak
0: weakness is a sign of low estrogen
1: (laughs) <laughs> also, estrogen is really important for sperm production and motility. So, yeah. <laughs> but also, yeah. on the flip side of that, testosterone is really important for ovulation. So everybody right. does need both hormones and within that normal range to function properly. And, the you know, this outward emphasis on the role of testosterone really does need to change because that means we are missing a large part of the picture. And it's honestly bad science. And so this is where I'm absolutely fine with somebody saying, you know, I'm cherry picking by focusing on estrogen. Why don't you talk about testosterone? The reason I don't talk about it is because everybody's been fucking talking about it forever. And it's time that we focus on something else for a little bit, catch up on our knowledge, catch up on people understanding the role of estrogen. And then we can actually start combining these stories once there's parity in the understanding yeah and
0: so i mean that's the same thing right like it's the male you know the whole history, like his story mm-hmm. kind of thing is like the emphasis on hunting not because hunting was important but because it's a male's thing so to speak or mm-hmm. testosterone because it's predominantly associated with masculinity right this this lens of understanding history through the perspective of men or things mm-hmm. we associate with men
2: mm-hmm.
0: right oh, that's and absolutely so it's a, yeah true. it's like You have to shift the dialogue and this idea it's, if we only can say, well, if you talk about estrogen, you have to talk about testosterone. If you talk about women, you have to talk about men. It's like, that only keeps us, if it's like this, if we have a puzzle to to move, we are stuck on one piece or a small Mm -hmm. set of pieces.
2: Yeah. Right. Exactly. And because
0: you need to understand, yeah, there might be specialized research on testosterone and that's great. You need it for estrogen. And then eventually, yeah, like you said, like, then where do those pieces fit together?
1: We need more pieces of estrogen before we can complete the puzzle. Uh, and sure, we right. also need more pieces for testosterone. I mean, there, there's such variation in in how it's measured and at times a day and things like that. But also, can I backtrack a moment? Because I remembered something I wanted to say. Please do. It's related to pregnancy. And this is a hypothesis that I'm working on with with a colleague who is a cardiologist that, did you know... The physiological adaptations individuals undergo during pregnancy mirror almost one for one the physiological adaptations we see with endurance training.
2: No, but you know, it's (laughs) weird when you say it, it's one of those I'm not
0: entirely surprised in some way once it's said. Yeah, Huh.
1: but it's so cool. It's one of those things of like, I. so the hypothesis, what I just told you is not the hypothesis, but the hypothesis is, is that We might actually have to thank our physiological capabilities at endurance running. We have to, we have to thank pregnancy for that. Like the Hmm. underlying physiology that makes those changes associated with pregnancy possible might also be why we're really good at endurance activities. And it might not have been until we evolved bipedalism and stood upright to have nice long striding legs that we could really unlock that endurance potential that pregnancy set in place likely millions upon millions, if not a hundred millions of years ago.
2: That's so
0: interesting. Again, that, yeah, that reminds me, I asked Sarah if she knew the book, but she didn't is um Eve, the, how the female body yes. drove to it. Yes. I'm, I have the book on my shelf. I'm so excited to read it. I hope to get the author onto the podcast. Um, yeah. Have you, have you read that book?
1: I am actually listening to it right now. It focuses a little bit more on medicine, um and like the ways in which that we have you know understood our evolution and particularly the evolution of women has led to bias in medical care today is a little bit more of the focus of that but it is a really cool story
0: yeah just this you this whole thing has been like i feel like she has to know this fucking bus
1: <laughs> oh no she and i have talked about it she's even sent me a link to it and she just might not have remembered the title
0: <laughs> oh that's all yeah i asked her and i think she she might not have hers maybe she said it's oh no i think she said she knew it but hadn't read it maybe i can't remember yeah but yeah she we didn't get too very far in it but yeah okay yeah i did i wasn't totally sure the perspective was going to go um but if i remember she's like and this is not a big thing but the author's not she's like a creative writer isn't she she's not maybe she is a scientist but i don't remember because i remember she some people being the- like she's not even she's not even a scientist.
1: Uh, she's not People like do. an evolutionary biologist. That that, that That's absolutely true. Um, mm-hmm. However, so I'm working on a book now, too. And uh, when I saw the her title book and the press it was getting, I panicked at first. I'm like, oh, fuck, have I been scooped? And of course, it's a very <laughs> different angle and, and, and things that they're working on. But also, it took her 11 years, and maybe I shouldn't say took her, but she wrote that book for 11 years, and I am so incredibly jealous as I've had to Wait, get God. mine done in a year and a half. <laughs>
0: What's the, can I guess? This is kind of jumping ahead. I was not asked for a self plug section, but can we hear more yeah. about this book, or is it too early to yes. say?
1: Yes. Oh hell, we could talk about it. My my uh, my publisher editor said I can talk about it anytime I want. Um, because it's due in like six weeks. So, oh um, shit! It is. Yeah, I I know, right? Uh, because I should probably be writing instead of talking to you, but this is way more fun. Um, so the title of the book is maybe the best part. It is called "That's What She Said: The Story of Hugh Woman Evolution." Um, so that's my little, you know, dig at a sexist joke and turning it on its head to some degree. Um, and so it's taking a look at the ways in which evolution was likely acting on the female of the species, to in many ways shape our evolutionary trajectory. Uh, and so I, you know, there's a chapter that's very much like the the papers that Sarah and I put out. I have a whole chapter on pregnancy and talking about this link to endurance. Um, there's a chapter about labor and delivery and the competing hypotheses as to why human labor and delivery is as difficult as it is and how it relates to bipedalism. Uh, the grandmother hypothesis, uh, female resilience. Females are actually much more physiologically resilient than males are for many, many reasons. Estrogen is one of them, actually. Um, mm-hmm. I. I currently have a whole chapter on estrogen, but my editor didn't like it because it sounded too textbooky. So either that gets rewritten or broken up and the pieces go elsewhere in the book. And then, of course, I'll talk about the history. I think I went in like the reverse order of things here. I'll talk about the history of Man the Hunter, but more particularly the history of feminist human evolution and why it needs a bit of an update today with all of the the modern data that we've been collecting.
2: Okay. This is so interesting. Yeah, I've been
1: really, like, I've
0: been kind of gearing myself towards a, what would I call it, an eco-feminist perspective, I suppose. Mm -hmm. Oh, my dog is barking. Uh, (laughs) But yeah, so that has been really interesting for me. Um, And I guess this is a question, maybe you don't have to answer this, but this is something I'm, I'm interested in is, unfortunately for this kind of... The intersection of feminism and evolution Or feminism and ecology Unfortunately there seems to be this Harsh essentialism And like particularly that manifests itself Now as like transphobia Like turf, like Mm -hmm. trans-exclusionary radical feminism Yeah Um, What are the implications for your research Going forward for Feminism or like intersectionality whatever you want to call it What does this mean for us in the 21st century?
1: So I mean that's a really hard thing, and I've written a number—not a number—I've written a couple of pieces talking about you know the the way, surfs and trans exclusionary uh, legislation has been really harmful and how it's based on either non-existent or really poor science, and I, I find it deeply problematic. And I think part of, you know, the kind of work that Sarah and I do is is highlighting the multiple different ways in which humans can be and operate within society, and that it doesn't fit this particular mold that everybody has put in their mind. I mean, here's the deal. Transgender people have likely been around for as long as there have been people. uh, And they likely played different roles in the society. like They were individuals contributing just like everybody else. Of course, we're never gonna find evidence for that in the fossil record. That's just not going to exist. Sometimes we do find evidence for it in the archeological record when we can actually see cultural goods associated with people and things like that. And so I think bringing these stories to light and you know m- making people realize the history they have been taught has n- was never the full picture. I think that's one of the big messages that we can send home uh, that- Such a great way to
2: put
1: it. Yeah, and variation and diversity. Like those are the true facts of biology and of life and nothing is ever clear cut or simple. It never mm-hmm.
2: is. Yeah. I like that. Cause you
0: know, when I, so this is, so I, this is super related to this topic, but I'm really interested in the American civil war. Right. Mm. And so the lost cause, the lost cause myth that it was all about states rights and states rights of the South versus like Northern tyrannical, like federal government. Right. That's the you idea. You not
1: that, own people. Yes. Yes.
0: Right. And so this idea is for a long time, the lost cause myth, was the belief was based the mainstream belief system about the cause of the Civil War, mm-hmm. right? However, people say it's revisionism, historical revision. And I know revisionism in academia means something else, but revisionism in this—it's a—is it revisionism or is it a correction? Because you revised history, we're course correcting it.
1: Yeah, you so know? that's exactly it. Like we have been accused of revisionist history, you know, by numerous trolls and things like that. But I mean, you know, these are also people, and there's a Venn diagram out there of the trolls who have come after Sarah and I, and those who attended the January 6th insurrection. Uh, and, you know, those who think it was a peaceful protest and nothing bad happened. Like, the idea of a revisionist history is just so ridiculous to me that this kind of goes back to what we were talking about, kind of at the beginning of the podcast, is that when you get new information or if you look at it with just a slightly different perspective, different stories do emerge and different stories that better fit the evidence at hand than the previous stories. So yeah, the and there's as much. Hand, yeah.
0: No, go on, go on. Oh, and
1: please, that,
2: please.
1: and to, to relate this back to Woman the Hunter, the evidence at hand suggests females and males were doing the exact same things. Which means we Mm -hmm. need to revise this idea that only males were hunting in the Paleolithic.
2: Mm.
0: Right. And I just, I find it, you know, I find it interesting that we can acknowledge... The diversity of hunter-gatherer life. Because to me, it's like, you know, Graver Windrose, The Dawn of Everything. I fucking hate that book. But it's important <laughs> for certain things. I I hate that. Oh, it's not fair to say we were hunter-gatherers in the Paleolithic. Because I redo that's that's racist. It's like, yeah, okay, you're dumb. You're an idiot. Uh, I'm not, I, I won't buy that. Yeah, it's fair to say there was diversity in the Paleolithic. Uh-huh. And the expression of hunter-gatherer life, yeah. We might have had this idea that there might have been some hunter-gatherer cultures. Extremely patriarchal, right? You might have had yeah. those that were extremely egalitarian. here's the thing is what were their material conditions in which you know i'm a for a the word a cultural materialist right there's the materialist anthropology right i identify strongly with that yeah so what is the basis for that culture but we tend yeah. to see general trends from the evidence is that hunter gatherers are up until very recently very egalitarian non-invasive in their environment or non what's where I don't say invasive to that Terry's weird connotations, but you know what I mean? Like this. Oh my God. Like the fucking overkill theory. I'm so tired of that shit. Oh my God. Like, like this, I, you know, but again, some hundred others might have done that, but it seems to Mm -hmm. me most were not right. But it's like, we can talk about the fact that again, you acknowledge there are some hundred others that might've very much been this kind of way, but it seems the Mm -hmm. evidence is most of them were not.
1: Yeah. Yeah. In the paleolithic, We do not have evidence that there was a sexual division of labor. The evidence we have shows everyone was doing everything. And that's the other thing is that, you know, people are yelling that when I say there's no evidence for sexual division of labor, that I'm demanding people provide proof of a negative. Okay, that's one way you can look at it. But the other way you can look at it is, is that we have positive evidence that everyone was doing the same activities. or at least capable
2: and
0: willing even if they're not always doing it they're capable and have they have done it
1: oh i mean there's no way that like everyone was doing everything all the time we have amputations from neanderthals like amputated limbs and these people Mm -hmm. live well past these injuries But they certainly weren't. Yeah, yeah. They certainly weren't going out and hunting when they were recovering from their amputated arm. Like, no, of course not. (laughs) And maybe they never went hunting again. But they were probably still contributing meaningfully in different ways.
0: And that, and people will hear that and be like, "Oh, so they had to provide for them economically." No, but what are they providing? Because here's the thing: is and this comes up in ultra social. They might provide on the basis of being present is enough Mm -hmm. to just. You know, because this idea, like um, capitalism, you don't provide, you fucking leech, you, you need to pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Hundred others, generally speaking, of course, I'm again, we're generally speaking, there are some that are less this way, right? But generally speaking, they seem to be very accepting of, in, in acknowledging the the, the usefulness of just being, yeah, right. Otherwise, you would not have this extreme compassion. They're not, a Neanderthal. like, and here's the thing, if they're traveling, in which they are, they're nomadic in some ways, if you have an amputation, you have to slow down for them, or the the one that didn't have teeth, right? Mm -hmm. Someone had to mash food up for him and prepare food for him, probably. Mm -hmm. And that's more labor, going into someone that is not providing as much, perhaps, of a material subsistence for the group.
1: No, absolutely, absolutely. And perhaps that's what makes us human,
0: and that goes back. (laughs) And I know that goes back to just evidence for that group care, like, like Mm -hmm. 1.6 million years ago with erectus like that, like this idea that we're only human because we're homo sapien. I love this. This is the part of human evolution I love is we're starting to realize it's not branches, right? It's this this river Mm -hmm. that breaks off and intersects at different various points.
1: Yeah, and you know, I go back and forth. Like, this is one of the things that I'm sure people will be shocked and horrified when they hear this. But like in my intro biological anthropology course, I do not have my students memorize taxonomy because one, it changes like on a weekly basis, and oh my god, right? Yeah, like, and two, I'm not entirely sure how meaningful it is. You know, to to split you know this population into one species and that population to another species, or oh hey, they're now the same species. Let's just look at the general trends of things that are going on in different locations and how that might be contributing to the change over time. I don't exactly know how important these species names really are into understanding where we came from.
0: Yeah, to me, it's more like, what is, yeah, like, what are the trends? What are the relationships? And that's Mm -hmm. one thing is, like, the whole, like, hybridization or whatever. That's not the right Mm -hmm. word, but those, like, that's actually a lot more common than we thought. Yeah. Between
2: species. it is.
1: Yeah, it's all over. You definitely oh. get some paleo people on because uh, they would talk to you for days. A new paper just came out about this and there was an interesting discussion about like, well, what does it actually mean? Like, how are you defining a species and how, because if we use the traditional biological definition of a species, that means they could successfully reproduce reproductively viable offspring. But there's no way you can actually test that in the fossil record. None whatsoever.
0: Right, right. I mean, again, Clint of the cave bear. Hey, I'm just saying, there was some... Uh... <laughs> Yeah, and what is it like? We talked about. I talked about this with Sarah too. Is that like we were like, huh? What happened to the Neanderthal Y Y chromosome? We did. We happened. We got rid of it. We are. And that's like it's so interesting to me. In that, that we actually find what is it an actual hybrid of Denisovan and Neanderthal, and like we find some who are like just a few generations removed, and just how and the social implications for that, the fact that we recognized each other as something recognizable. Like Yeah, both as a potential human.
1: breeding partner. No, absolutely. Right,
0: people say, how do you know it wasn't rape? How do you know it's not rape? And say, oh, why are you jumping to that?
1: Come the yeah, fuck no, off. Yeah, no, is, that is the thing they always go to. And the same thing, like, we have almost sapien-Neanderthal hybrid evidence, too. And we have Neanderthal mm-hmm. DNA across the world. It's all over the place. And yeah, we're also
0: now finding it in Africa, which is the, the place where like the one place we thought it wouldn't be, but it turns out it actually might be because it just turned just because a human group leaves Africa doesn't mean they won't come back, perhaps far oh, into there the future.
1: A, a remnant of that group there either. Like there are some skulls from the Cobwe skull. Look up Cobwe, K-A-B-W-E. K-A-B-W-E. That skull. I look at that skull and I see a Neanderthal skull through and through and mm. through. Oh, you think <laughs> of Homo
0: Rodensiensis? Is that the cowboy stall
1: i don't even know because i no longer call it that i'm like that's an african neanderthal that is a neanderthal that lives in africa it makes sense for the time it makes sense for the morphology why are we giving these yeah yeah, why are we giving these things different names it doesn't help i think i
0: like there was this one i saw this one proposition is that everything either falls into erectus or sapien and they're like this is probably the cleanest way but then like homo naledi happened and they're like wait what the fuck the scene existed with, like, us, but it also, was, it's, like, primitive, and they're, like, what the fuck is, it literally looks like if you just, like, fictional hybridization, that it, like, 50% one thing, 50% another. Yeah, <laughs> and that then then it's
2: uh, story, for sure. I just, this <laughs> stuff is so, and I you
0: know, I, again, this is kind of, like, that's where I get really interested, like, the, what are the relationships between these peoples, right, and what does it mean to be yeah. human? Because it used to be stone, you know. Uh, Homo habilis, handyman. It used to be stone, yep. stone tools. Oh, that goes far, way further back than we thought. Fire use, nope. Language, maybe not. Or I just symbols generally, no, nope, not that. Yep. And at some point, it's like, are you going to say Homo sap At one point, if you continue to do that, Homo sap early Homo sapiens are not human because we. There is a point in which we're not behaving mo- in a modernistic way, right? The yeah. behavior, modernity, or whatever.
1: Hmm. No, absolutely. I, yeah. And this is always a thing that, like, my students will get confused about it, too, of, like, you know, why are all these different names and what does it actually mean to be human and and, and that? And, like, these are questions that we basically try to answer throughout, like, the rest of the, uh, like, the rest of the class. That's what we do.
2: Yeah. And it's weird. The intersection
0: there of, like, anthropology kind of gets a little philosophical a little bit, almost.
1: No, it really does. And it... it, it and it very clearly becomes that the, the the story of human evolution is written by the people studying it. And that story right. is going to change based on the people doing the work and then the evidence that we find. But a lot of these things often remain kind of story-based. Like we can only get so far with the evidence because fossil evidence can't tell the whole story. Uh, and, and until we develop a time machine that actually works, uh, it, it's still going to be, you know, the best we have for the moment and trying to make sense of it.
0: Yeah, that's a good point. It is a story. And some people say, this is just a story. Like my understanding of history and what I tell myself is, well, that's just a story. It's like, yeah, and you have your own. Like we have the evidence we're basing our story on, but and that's okay. Mm-hmm. And, and to admit it's anything else is just narcissism, I think.
1: Oh no, it absolutely is. Like, you know, academia is built on contrarianism. Uh, <laughs> you know, I feel like it is. And you know, part of that's good that's good because that does mean, you know, we are keeping ourselves in check. Like, if we made a mistake, someone's going to catch it at some point if it didn't get caught in peer review. And it'll further, you know, the hypotheses and the questions and then hopefully the, the actual science along. But some people are just contrarian to be contrarian. And it's, you know, trying to figure out where the valid criticisms are versus those who are just like, nah, I don't want to believe that. And so I'm going to disagree with you.
0: Boss's arm arms, sits down.
1: No, I don't <laughs> want to. Yeah, absolutely.
0: I guess related to that, so I guess I have two questions here. This one is particularly still episode related, and the last one is kind of like your self-plug. But how does the, the work of academia, you know, getting grants and funding and, you know, not pissing off the powers that be, how does that relate to the work that you, Sarah, or individually as well are doing? Right. Is that hamper your ability to do the work? Because I people like Graham Hancock, unfortunately, weaponize this kind of like populism. They're like, oh, well, they just don't. They, whoever they is, and we all know who he means by they, uh, you know, the lizard people, uh, you know, they don't want you to know. They, and there's truth to that. Like people have built their careers in a certain narrative, you know, and sure, they've worked on it, not to dismiss that. But it's like at some point they don't want there is a narrative to be sold and people fund it. Right. So how does that relate to the work
2: that
1: you're doing? I mean, one thing, we didn't receive any money (laughs) to to do those review articles whatsoever. Uh, You know, it's a passion project and, you know, it's related to, you know, the book I'm writing and things like that. So we didn't get any grant funding there. There is a part of me that's actually deeply concerned what my experience at our next big conference is like, like there are people who absolutely love this work and they they think it is a very necessary step forward in the ways in which we reconstruct the past. But then there are some, especially those who work with you know modern foraging populations, who think we're completely off our rocker and terrible scientists. And so there is a part of me that wonders like, is my career sunk now? Will I never be taken seriously ever again? And I, it's a possibility. Uh, I do have my work in Finland, and that's what I apply for grants for. And I, I got a grant this past summer to to continue that work in Finland. So that will keep going strong at least for the next three years. But I often sit and pause, Artemis. I'm not going to lie. Of you know, what am I opening myself up to that's going to be damaging? Um, at first, Notre Dame had a little bit of I wouldn't say a cold reception, but like eh, whatever reception. And then finally, I got a hold of the right people to be like, hey this work is literally on the cover of scientific American. And as far as I can tell, no other Notre Dame professor has had their work on the cover of scientific American. You might want to promote this. Um, and then of course, you know, they, they got to work and started promoting these kinds of things on my behalf, which was wonderful. But I, I, I do have some pause and, and an interesting thing happened as well as that I was contacted by somebody from the international Olympic committee. And I was like, shit, this is awesome. like, I could do something great with the International Olympic Committee and start getting those rules in shape. And in my response, I sent them two of the articles I'd written about sexism in sports, and then I never heard back from them again. <laughs> so, like there, you know, there are these pros and cons. And everyone who is supportive says, you know, you're doing something right if you're pissing people off, and if you're pissing off the right people to be pissed off. And that is something that I need to remind myself of on a daily basis is that this work wouldn't be important and meaningful if it didn't garner some level of criticism.
0: Right, right. That makes sense. I mean, I applaud that. Like, it's not easy. I can get that. You know, like, even in my job, like, teaching certain lessons, like, we had a, I encouraged my students every Friday, you, I will give you, last semester was current events, like, you're going to keep up to date, like, you're going to be conscious of this Mm -hmm. shit. And also. How do we talk about bias? But this semester, it's, I give them topics and we talk about masculinity. You can you are the teacher. I want you to teach us about masculinity connected to what we're learning about in class. And, you know, depending who's presenting, it's going to be very different. And I've yeah. had parents be very upset that I'm like pushing an agenda. I, was like, I didn't write that lesson. Your kid did.
2: <laughs> <laughs> your, kid, your kid wrote
0: that, you know. And then obviously not quite the same thing because the parents, know, I guess in a sense the parents do fund me because property taxes or whatever, but it's also yes like, true. yeah, you know, so, but but also, it's
1: the same. Notion they're, of
2: not,
1: they're not trained educators either. And I am, I am, I am very concerned for not only primary education in this country, but secondary and higher education. It is getting more and more deeply concerning to me that people think their opinions are valid facts and they are not. Um, and that expertise is meaningless. Oh, the, the number of times where I hear, "Oh, is this just you know an appeal to authority?" I'm like, "Well, yes. I've literally spent my career studying this. Why should you?" Well, not I know. I googled. I, I googled <laughs> something.
0: I googled, and I went to. a And I made a joke with Sarah. We were googled. And we we're. Uh, I searched something up. I was like, much like you, I am now a scholar because I googled.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: You know. Yeah. It's the same. It's, and I get it. Like there is something you said about, you know, how do we challenge authority and, you know, science. And there's a lot of interesting discussions that can come out of that, but simply being like, you're an expert, therefore you can't be trusted is not mm-hmm. so I really follow that.
1: Yeah, I know. Like, sure. How about you, you know, take your car to your cardiologist to have your carburetor fix. And then when you have congestive heart failure, you can go to your mechanic. Cause that makes perfect fucking sense in both ways. Right. Like, come on now. You all rely Uh, on everybody else's expertise. Why are you drawing the line here?
0: And it's funny where people decide to arbitrarily draw those lines based on their own opinions or experiences, Mm -hmm. which I get, that's how how we do it. But maybe a little bit of research might go a long way.
1: But like, how about you talk to the experts? Because your research on Google is really only going to give you things that confirm your bias. Because you're likely going to have that bias seep into your search terms. (laughs) And www.imright.com <laughs> and you're also more likely to click on the articles that are going to confirm your thinking rather than challenge it
0: yep yep that's a great point yeah that's something i talk again talking about bias with my students and how to be good researchers even for just an english paper is like think mm-hmm. about when you're looking something up like if i point two different students are you going to look like, on the same articles I mean you yeah. might just because it's the first one that pops up and you want to finish my essay, but yeah, you know, besides that, the first you know, when you actually think about what am I wanting to write about and why am I interested in it or research yeah, no, exactly. or read or whatever.
2: Exactly. But, yeah. That's
0: not where I expected that to go, but that was awesome. That was really cool. Um I the last thing then is for you is we talked about the book, but how can people perhaps you said you know people could email you. I can put your email in the description if you so wish. Um so what is the way, best way for people to like follow your work and, and support the work that you do? And then yeah, anything else that you, work with, you want to talk about?
1: I am marginally on various social media websites, including, I'm going to call it Twitter, because who knows how long it'll last anyway. Um, including Twitter, Blue Sky, I'm barely on Mastodon, but I am also on Instagram too. But I mostly post my things to Blue Sky Twitter and Facebook um, No one add me on Facebook. I'm very limited on that. But feel free to follow me on the other things at Kara Ackaback. Very easy, and my email address is c o c o b o c k at n d dot edu. So at Notre Dame n d dot edu, or you can just Google me. It's easy enough to find faculty profiles.
0: Oh, yeah. That's. I mean, that's so funny. Is when people are like, "Where'd you find this person?" I say, "It's really incredible." I just looked them up in the institution that they worked at, and usually they're pretty good about responding. That
1: was a thing on Twitter that was so funny that, like, I told a guy to email me so I could send him the paper and he's like, how do I find your email? I'm like, dude, you're literally on the internet right now. (laughs) (laughs) Google my fucking name. Are you kidding me?
0: That's why the uh, idea of the digital native, I've written about this, the digital native is bullshit. I fucking hate that idea.
1: I don't know. I'm not familiar with that one at all. You
0: grow up in you grow up in the internet, therefore, or technology, therefore you should know how to use it.
1: Yeah, no, that's true. It seems that people have definitely not learned how to use it even for the simplest of tasks. Uh, but that was really a funny, delightful moment for me.
0: <laughs> I've had similar ones like in the classroom, but I won't I won't continue to talk about the classroom. But Tara, this is Cara, I'm sorry, this has been... No, it's
1: Kara. This, it's Cara, you got it.
0: Okay, okay, now I'm sorry, it's two hours in, my brain functioning is starting to slow down a little bit on me. Um, <laughs> this has been This has been great, I hope, you know, while we tread similar ground, I think you provide a lot of, like, from your own perspective and your expertise, you answer questions differently than Sarah, and obviously I geared some of these questions towards you because your background in physiology. Um, this has been awesome, and I hope people, like, get something out of it. If they disagree... You know, I'm I'm gonna send these episodes to people I know are gonna disagree. We'll see if they reach out to you. I'm sure they'll talk to me, yeah. who's not the expert. And we just talked about it. I would encourage people if you disagree, like come onto reach the podcast out. and tell me what you want to talk about.
1: You no, know. man, I'll even have a video conference with them. I have offered to more than one troll to have a Zoom meeting, and no one ever takes me up on that. I'm actually
0: people want more confrontation on this podcast, and I've been setting up a few couple debates. If anyone would like to debate. The duo, Agabat and, and Lacey, on this about uh, division of labor and egalitarianism in hunter gatherer societies, I'd be more than happy to facilitate that. I think that would be.
1: <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
0: I'm okay well, with as that. As
1: long as the person's opening salvo is not women didn't hunt because menstruation would attract bears, then sure. Uh-huh. Yeah, no, I got that one too.
2: Okay.
0: Uh, so would a crying child while gathering, but that didn't stop them apparently.
1: No, 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 not at all. But you know, just because we get our information from Brick from Anchorman about menstrual blood and bears, <laughs> doesn't make you a a valid contributor to the argument.
0: Yeah. Well, uh, again, thank you for listening. Uh, all resources will be in the description because this is second episode that will that's newly recorded that'll be on Spotify. All resources will be in the YouTube description, not the Spotify. If you're listening on YouTube, this doesn't that's not relevant to you. But thank you for listening.